0: Is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. So often in true crime, we hear about the boogeyman, the Wesley Allen Dodds or Gary Ridgeways, an animalistic creature that stalks a person like prey with no rhyme or reason. But too often, the perpetrator of violence is someone within the home. These horrendous acts leave people wondering how well they know those they share a home and sometimes a bed with. Today, I'll be exploring three cases of full or partial family annihilations and speaking with Dr. Stephanie Lyda clinical and forensic psychologist, to discuss the signs of someone who may go over the edge and what you can do if you think you're seeing them. While it isn't in the dictionary, the Wikipedia definition of familicide is a type of murder or murder-suicide in which a perpetrator kills multiple close family members in quick succession, most often children, relatives, a spouse, siblings, or parents. In half the cases, the killer lastly kills themselves in a murder-suicide, where all members of a family are killed, the crime may be referred to as a family annihilation. These cases tend to be shocking and headline-grabbing. It's one thing to want to be rid of a spouse, but to also harm your own children? It's unfathomable. From media coverage, you'd think family annihilators are fairly rare as far as murderers go. Thinking back on the last few years, I can recall accused killer Lori Vallow, who has been charged in the deaths of her two children, Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow. Her case is technically matricide, but besides her, I think of Chris Watts, who fits the more traditional familicide profile, having killed his wife Shanann, the baby she was pregnant with, and his two daughters, Bella and Celeste, his motive being a new girlfriend and freedom he wrongfully assumed smothering his entire family would bring he's currently serving the rest of his life behind bars. Sadly, due to the number of mass murders that occur annually in the U.S., many of which intersect with family annihilations, the science isn't exact when it comes to statistics. There are some stats, though. If you've watched, well, anything related to true crime, you've seen former FBI profiler Brad Garrett, and he has some thoughts on family annihilators. He shares that there are a variety of reasons someone might kill their family— Sometimes it's for money or perhaps an ego bruise from not being able to provide, especially for the perceived man of the house. He says, quote, losing identity is the key component here. Another interesting fact, most killings occur in August because the kids are home from school and that limits the amount of people that would be looking for family members. The red flag of children not showing up to school for a few days isn't of concern. And like most killers, the plan of going through with the murders only goes so far as the act itself. For someone like Chris Watts, it was the immediate gratification of eliminating something or someone that was in his way so he could have what he wanted. While the plotting of the event might take weeks or even months, there often isn't a plan B in place should the culprit plan on surviving and then get caught. Hence the outrageous stories we often hear on the news involving those men begging for their family's safe return. The Howard Journal of Criminal Justice analyzed news reports of familicide in 2013. Looking through 30 years of incidents, they found 71 cases, of which 59 of the killers were males, and a majority were between 30 and 40 years old. 57% of the murders took place in the family's home, as opposed to an isolated area, which was found in only 17% of the cases. Common methods include shooting, stabbing, and carbon monoxide poisoning. Another study showed that 95% of the killers were men who were considered to be the head of the household. While he may present himself as a well-educated, well-off, and overall decent member of society, he may exhibit red flags like rage, jealousy, and control of his partner. A trigger that can lead to a person deciding to kill his family can be a sense of lost control. A cheating partner might want a divorce. Financial stress might have them feeling like they aren't a worthy provider. In in some cases, they may even justify their actions by implying they were saving their children from the pain a life change like a divorce or loss of status could bring. Studies have found that there are four types of family annihilators. The disappointed killer, A failure of his own or a family member in the eyes of the killer may lead to the family's demise. The self-righteous killer. They don't see their obsessive need to be perfect or have a perfect family as the problem. They typically blame their partner, usually the mother of the children. There are even documented incidents of fathers calling the mothers if they are out of the house at the time before killing their children to inform her of what he intends to do the anomic killers. In this case, the father usually sees his family not as people, but as a reflection of his own success. So if he's doing well, his kids can have the best clothes, toys, and gadgets. His wife can look like a trophy. But if things go awry in the financial department, the family only reminds him of what he can't provide. Finally, paranoid killers. This can be mental health or substance abuse related. The killer sees the killing as a way to protect their family. I think Josh Powell, the man who is believed to have murdered his wife before blowing up the house he and his two sons were occupying, probably fits, at least partially, in this category. He would have rather seen his family dead than in custody of their grandparents. Is that if it seems like the idea of someone killing their family is more common these days, you aren't wrong. In just the first 10 years of the 2000s, over half of the documented occurrences of family annihilations took place.
1: Are there any well known, um, more like historical family annihilators case like cases like that? I That's just can't think of question. anyone that are famous that I um, I don't know of any that are like prominent, maybe because it was just like something that dudes did back then.
0: The one I think of was the fifties. It was the List family. And I know that one because of forensic files. It was the one where they had the man make the face out of clay and he put the dark glasses on and he was like, This man killed his whole family. He He would be hiding behind these thick black glasses, and they found the man, and he looked exactly like that still. But it's a great forensic file. That
1: is one of the greatest, Um, yeah, thank you.
0: That, as far as I can think from, like, the 20th century, that's maybe one of the most prominent. Today I'll be talking about some recent, not headline-grabbing cases of family annihilation. This is obviously graphic and difficult content, so listener discretion. In a recent case that goes against all expected statistics, a mother and daughter in Pennsylvania pled guilty but mentally ill in the murders of five family members. As a non-expert, I can only assume this pair would fall under the paranoid killers. On February 25, 2019, police arrived at the home of 47-year-old Shayna Decree. Making their way into the back bedroom, police found the bodies of Shayna's children, Nariah Smith, 25, Damon Decree Jr., 13, her sister Jamila Campbell, 42, and Jamila's twin daughters, Shayna's nieces, Imani and Erica Allen, who were nine. After finding the murdered family, police spoke with the two survivors, Shayna and her 21-year-old daughter, Dominique Decree. They seemed confused and in a daze. It was quickly realized those women weren't survivors, they were the killers. Giving differing accounts, the mother-daughter duo were unable to keep their stories straight when speaking to police, mixing up which one of them had killed whom. When it came to the autopsies, it was found that Damon, Naraya, Imani, and Erica had all died of asphyxia, Jamila via ligature strangulation. Even more upsetting, it was found the killings themselves took place over approximately three days. In late September 2020, both women pled guilty but mentally ill, a fairly new plea option. Unlike an insanity plea, someone pleading GBMI won't automatically be sent to a psychological facility for treatment. Instead, sentences tend to be the same as a non-mental illness finding, but the option for help is there. It's an acknowledgment of criminal guilt while also acknowledging the existence of mental illness. The plea made sense for someone like Shana, who explained to the courts that she hadn't been feeling like herself for quite some time. She was also found to suffer from hallucinations, her public defender even saying, quote, she believed she had to obey the demons. Shana's daughter, Dominique, who was crying throughout the proceedings, was apologetic and remorseful. She admitted that her actions, the weight of which she would have to carry for the remainder of her life, were still confusing. Documentation hasn't been made public yet, but it is believed both women suffer from serious and multiple mental illnesses. The judge agreed that their mental illnesses needed to be acknowledged and treated, saying the need for their rehabilitation is obvious, before sentencing them to five life sentences for the five lives they took. It's uncertain if they will receive any treatment for their mental health. The next case is one that I heard about when it happened in early 2019 because the people I know that work in or are related to law enforcement were talking about the effect it had on the officers that responded. It had been so shocking and traumatizing, several ended up quitting the force altogether. Saturday, January 19th, 2019, was a special day for 42-year-old Mark Gago. It was his first day on the job doing car cleaning and detailing in Salem, only 20 minutes south from his home in Woodburn, Oregon. Just a few days prior, he had posted on Facebook, Yes, we did it. Shana Sweltzer, my love, start my new job Monday. We are getting into our own home. Thank you for the support and staying strong, my love. To celebrate the occasion, he even brought pizzas home for dinner with his family. By 10 p.m., something had drastically changed. At 10.15 p.m., police received a call about domestic violence with an attempted homicide to the 32,000 block of South Barlow Road. In the house, along with Mark, was 64-year-old Pamela Bremer, his mother and owner of the home her husband and Mark's stepfather, Jerry Bremmer, 66 and wheelchair-bound, Mark's girlfriend, Shana Schweitzer, 31, and their 9-month-old daughter, Olivia Gago. Shana's 8-year-old daughter, Haley, from a previous relationship, and Tracy Burbank, a 40-year-old roommate, also shared the space. After having met in 2015, when Mark was the caregiver for Shana's mother, who was dying, the couple moved in with his family. Excitedly, they were looking forward to moving in a few weeks, finally getting a place of their own. Raising two children in a house with parents and a roommate isn't exactly ideal. But the excitement was starting to fade into fear when Mark began to exhibit violent behavior. Shana even texted her ex, the eight-year-old's father, that Mark became upset and had strangled her on several occasions. That may have been Shana's first encounter with violence from Mark, but it wasn't his first use of violence. Assault charges in 2001 and 2005 had been dismissed. In August of 2018, Mark was charged with and arrested for unlawful possession of a firearm. He had been to court post-divorce as he wasn't keeping up with paying child support. Additionally, Mark had always had a fascination with knives, and he was a collector of sharp objects and weapons like swords, axes, guns, and hatchets. He also dabbled in hard drug use. None of those red flags could have left anyone predicting what Mark would do on that January night. That evening, after getting loaded on methamphetamine, alcohol, which was a small amount compared to the meth, an amphetamine, and weed, Mark gathered an assortment of weaponry. Entering Tracy, the roommate's room, around 10.15, she awoke to find him swinging an axe around. In her groggy state, she couldn't process what she was seeing at first. She thought maybe Mark was just being weird and playing around. She quickly realized the swings of the axe were being directed at her, with one eventually striking her back. As she tried to protect herself from another blow by raising up her leg, Mark hit her in the pelvis. Panicked and hurt, she tried to get away. That's when Mark dropped the axe, climbed on top of Tracy's back, and started biting. Screaming for help, she couldn't understand why none of the other three adults in the house weren't coming to her aid. Finally slipping out of his grip, she headed for the front door. As she went through the house, her bare feet were being ripped by the shards of broken glass. Then she saw Pamela, Mark's mother, dead on the floor. With the house on a decent-sized plot of land, the closest neighbor wasn't next door, as you would picture in a suburban neighborhood. But once she made it to the closest house, she was able to call 911. That would be scary. Opening your
2: eyes and seeing someone with an axe. Can't even process it. And it's your roommate your friend I would Im- immediately think I was dreaming
0: yeah or like I'm not processing this correct did right. I did I miss some sort of planned joke we had or d- but then did he getting, watch a horror movie and he's
2: pranking me and getting hit with it then you realize it's real yeah how terrifying
0: and especially that I feel like the adrenaline you get when you're coming out of sleep is so different and so intense compared mm-hmm. to just like you well, because your heart rate slowed when you're sleeping, it would it would feel unreal. When the police arrived, they found one body right away. It was Shayna. She was on the porch. A shovel was at her feet. At first, police were cautious as they approached the house, unaware of what Mark had done after his attack on Tracy. Once Tracy escaped, the eight-year-old girl Haley was sleeping in her bedroom before being awoken by the sounds of her baby sister and mother crying and her stepfather yelling. Then everything went quiet. Quiet except for a dripping sound that was coming from right outside her door. At this point, Mark had moved on to a small hatchet or a hammer-like axe. Holding the blood-soaked weapon, he went into Haley's room. He pulled her out of her bed by her hair Spoke in what she said were riddles and pushed her up against the wall before he started strangling her. As he was attempting to kill his stepdaughter, Mark was unaware the police were already on the property and had seen Shayna's body. As officers started to take in what had happened to Shayna, they heard the cries of young Haley and realized the attacks were ongoing. As they made their way to the location of the screaming, things only got worse. On the floor inside, they found Pamela and nine month old Olivia grandmother and grandbaby. It was clear both had experienced severe head trauma. In the unlit hallway, they discovered Jerry Bremer. His wheelchair was overturned and he had been decapitated. Calling out to the little girl, police asked her to come to them. She was able to relay that that wasn't going to be possible. Passing the carnage, the four officers found Mark and Haley in a back bedroom. The noise of their arrival had stopped the strangulation. When they made contact, Mark was holding Haley's body in front of his, his arm wrapped tightly around her neck. As he continued to scream, they lied to me, they lied to me, and growl in what was described as a creepy evil tone, no, his arm tightened. It was clear he was actively murdering Haley. As the officers evaluated the situation and their options, something occurred, something that even the officers who were present can't explain. Perhaps the girl slipped away from his grip, or maybe he dropped her. Perhaps an officer had grabbed her, or it was just divine intervention. But the girl was suddenly out of Mark's death grip and was on the ground, leaving an opening for the officers to shoot and kill Mark on the spot. They were later found to have been justified in the shooting. Pulling Haley out of the house, orders were given to the responding officers to not enter unless absolutely necessary. Not only was it a cluttered crime scene, of which multiple weapons were strewn about, but it was remarkably violent. One officer described the scene as, quote, It looked like somebody had a blower with, like, red paint and just coated the walls. I mean, it looked, it was, like, impossibly fake. Tracy, the roommate, and Haley, Shana's daughter, each survived their injuries. Obviously, they both will never fully recover from such trauma. After the incident, police interviewed those who knew Mark. Again, there had been red flags all along, but no one could have predicted he would have been capable of such a heinous act. At times, he would exhibit erratic behavior. His relationship with his mother, Pamela, was known to have been tense. Tracy shared that Mark would talk about his paranoid feelings towards the government, which might have been part of his obsession with weaponry, all of which did not mix well with meth. In Mark's bedroom, a notebook was found. It had been addressed to his family. It's unclear if that means his family that was in the home, as though he was going to take his own life, or his extended family once he decided to murder his immediate family members. The writings inside were deemed to be similar to a suicide note, a goodbye letter. It wasn't easy for the medical examiner to determine what exactly had happened to the victims, as there was an array of weapons used in extremely violent ways. Eventually, they were able to determine the cause of death for Pamela, Mark's mom, Olivia, his baby, and Shayna, his girlfriend. It was sharp force trauma involving an axe and knives. Jerry, Mark's stepdad, was determined to have been killed by blunt and sharp force traumas, most likely from a sword. I'm not sure if that means he was dead before being decapitated, but I hope for his sake that that was the case. As a memorial built by friends, family, and strangers started to surround the house, it was hoped the memories of those lost that day wouldn't be the violence that took them away, but the kindness of Pamela. How Shayna's final social media post was raising funds for the suicide prevention hotline as a gesture for her birthday. Haley plans on remembering her mother as she feels she is with her every day, making her strong, keeping her safe as a guardian angel. Details on the family are limited. I can only assume the remaining family members want as little in the public as possible. They've been through hell already. With Mark dying during his murder spree, we won't ever have the answers as to why or what led him to killing his family. Again, this sounds like a case of a paranoid killer. Perhaps the combination of the stress of the upcoming move and the new job and drug use triggered some sort of severe mental health crisis. Of course, no one wants to imagine their friend or family member could be capable of such evil, but isn't that what is always said in the aftermath? For more information about family annihilators, abuse, warning signs, and more, we look to clinical and forensic psychologist Dr. Stephanie Lida. Hello, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dr. Stephanie
3: Lida. I am a forensic psychologist and I specialize in the prevention of violence. So, and I have a a long history of working with families and children working with abuse and neglect. So the idea of familicide or family annihilators, whatever word you want to use for it, uh, is is something that's rare, but it's something that is concerning and something that we're always seeking to prevent. So it's it's something that it's interesting and and worth studying. I always come from the prevention side rather than the autopsy side looking at it from afterwards. So that's my particular bent. And uh, what else do you need to know? I'm the president of the forensic division of the Connecticut Psychological Association, the president of the New England chapter of Association of Pre-assessment Professionals, and I teach at University of Hartford and um, affiliated with Columbia and all kinds of other fun things. I have an awesome career. I love being a forensic psychologist. That's the important part.
0: That is the important part because that is difficult work to do. So to enjoy it, I'm sure, makes it a little easier to tackle such difficult topics.
3: Well, these topics are interesting to everyone, right? That's why you have a podcast about them.
0: That's true. That's true. It, it, there is a, a fascination. And my next question was, what drew you to Family Annihilators? which you already answered. So you were already working with families with uh, abuse and that kind of thing. and, And were you kind of drawn to that?
3: I started working in the field of abuse and neglect pretty soon after I graduated from college. And I took a bunch of years off before I went back to school to get my doctorate. So I really found that working in that arena of Preventing abuse and neglect, domestic violence, intimate partner violence was something that was really powerful and meaningful to me, and very, very interesting. And uh, as you said, it's difficult work, but for me, I find it to be interesting and fascinating, and a place where we can create really good change, which is what it's all about for me. I mean, I could have got my doctorate and done therapy with bored housewives, but that's not my style. So. I like this. I like this work, and, and I find it to be important and meaningful. So uh, the idea of family annihilators, like I said, it's rare. It's not the bulk of anyone's practice. It's not something that you really don't come across, but something that we have to study and pay attention to nonetheless.
0: So in my minimal studies, I mean, barely a, a drop in the bucket compared to yours, I did find what is believed to be basically the four types of family annihilators, and please correct me if I'm inaccurate at all, which would be the disappointed, self-righteous, anomic, and paranoid, if that is accurate, could you expand on those at all or kind of touch on the topic of like the types of people or the the drive from where that comes from? I'm so
3: bad at formal taxonomy. I, I The thing that was hardest for me about learning psychology was doing multiple choice exams and having to pick A, B, C, and D. So in, in my work, the, the two kinds of people that I have seen that tend to uh, go ahead and, and kill their families are those that are involved in uh, a family custody dispute, right? So where Stereotypically, though not always, the female partner leaves the male and takes the children with him, and that abandonment is considered to be over the top and unsupportable and impossible to survive. And in that case, the the man will sometimes kill the kids to get back at the wife um, and, and leave her alive. And then the other kind is when the man is just abjectly humiliated by life, either for financial reasons, um, loss of job, feels like he's not manly and has to kill his whole family and himself as well. So those are the two kinds of familicide that I have seen or that I have read about.
0: So is there something, perhaps some sort of factor where someone might be in that position, more likely the second one you were speaking of the humiliation or they're just in a mental health crisis and considering taking their lives. Are there factors there that change it from someone wanting to take their own life to then bringing the family into it or their children or or uh, someone else close to them?
3: Well, that's such a good question. So suicide and murder are like two sides of the same coin. and And quite often, indistinguishable in the mind of the person who commits them. And if you want to wipe yourself off the planet, the idea of adding in those people that you see as parts of yourself. So for a lot of uh, narcissistic individuals or borderline individuals, they don't see the difference between them and their family. They see their family as literally part of themselves. So adding them into the death equation seems logical if you think about things in that way where I can't be on this planet anymore they have those blinders so they can't think of other solutions the only way is through death and dying and the most logical thing to do is to bring those folks along with them so it's not sound logic it's not logic that I would engage in but then again logic goes out the window for many people who are suicidal. We can always, if we're not depressed, if we're not in a rage, if we're not feeling chronically put down by the world, we can come up with other solutions. But uh, these folks are see themselves as out of solutions.
0: So for someone like Chris Watts, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He I have studied his case, it's really interesting. And I think the really terrifying aspect of what he did was how he presented himself, as many of these people do, or or that I saw, you're a a well-functioning member of society and you've got this happy Instagrammable family. Are there red flags or warning signs that maybe go past this person might be having an issue and struggling to this person could be a danger to themselves or their family. I think there's always pre-indicators. So the thing
3: that I spend most of my life doing is threat assessment and management, which is preventing school shootings, which are a different kind of targeted violence. So if you have a guy like Chris Watt who makes a coherent decision to kill his family and then hide their bodies in various places, that's not the same thing as someone who is engaging in reactive violence. Like I'm so mad at you, I have to punch you right now. There are two very different things and school violence or workplace violence where a shooter comes in, it's very similar. And, and a lot of those folks desire suicide at the end as well. Um, Chris Watts is interesting because he didn't want to kill himself. He wanted to go off and have a fabulous life without his family. And that is indicative of just really deep uh, pathology and, and lack of understanding of their humanity. And I don't know all the details of their intimate life, but we do know that there always are pre-indicators. There are things that are not good in that life and there are things that are causing stress to the family. And As uh, someone wearing rose-colored glasses all the time, I feel like if we can find out what's going on in people's lives and just make them better, then we won't end up with these really dire situations. It's a hard time for women in general in our country, but if women are given a ground to stand on where they can tell people or friends that their relationship is going poorly, that their life is being controlled, there's a a move to not say domestic violence, but to say coercive control, because that's what it is. It's those coercive controlling indicators telling someone what they can wear or what they can't wear, where they can go, who they can be friends with that are, are really pathological and difficult and grinding on the woman. And if we can inspire women to share that, then likely they are less likely to be under the control over men who want to kill them
0: part of what makes it scary is this person not only planned on causing this harm, but then they had the nerve to think, Oh, I can just say she went for a walk, or I can say she went out fishing and she fell up. What, what is that? <laughs>
3: Psychology does have something to say about personality disorders, and so we always wave that flag around when we're talking about these kind of folks. So personality disorder is like a lifelong pattern of interacting with people in a particular way. So we say like narcissistic people, they see people as only being there as far as they're useful to themselves. So the people don't have as much of a personhood as you or I might see. I I fall in the trap sometimes of overvaluing other people and their rights and abilities because I think everyone has the capability to be a fabulous individual person, but someone who is a serious narcissist is not going to think that way. They're going to see them only existing to make them feel better. And then the top secret underlying thing about narcissists is that they have an inside of marshmallow and they're not a strong person. They want to look like a strong person, but inside they're just a pile of absolute goo. So when someone does anything that seems to put them down, they react with intense pain. They use these minor, what, Would seem like a trivial thing, feel to them like a massive affront, which is worthy of a massive retaliation because who would dare to hurt them so badly without obviously expecting to be seriously hurt in response?
0: On a personal note, I know someone going through a divorce and their children are with the other parent just a couple of nights a week, but there are concerns about a possible unmanaged mental health issue and a history of concerning behaviors and I'll say this about anyone, any person is capable of doing this. You always hear people say, I can't believe it was this family, but we've seen time and time again that it could happen to or at the hand of anyone. What are some of those things that people should be looking for as far as a red flag or uh, steps they can take if they do have those concerns?
3: Um, Management plans are really individual which is part of the creative wonderful thing about working with potentially dangerous people is crafting a plan which is just for their person, that person. So uh, obviously in a situation where you or someone else knows that person really well, they're gonna use that information effectively. So I'll tell you two of my favorite catchphrases, which I've printed on my business cards. One is prevention without prediction. So we can't predict whether someone is or isn't going to act violently in this kind of a divorce situation. You don't know whether one partner is going to act poorly or violently, but we can do things to prevent violence and even though we can't predict them. Just like you put your seatbelt on when you get in the car, even though you don't know you're going to get into a car accident. Or I look really schlubby because I did exercising today because I wish my heart to be healthy. I have no idea if it's going to help me live longer, but I hope so. So we do prevention without prediction all the time. And we need to think about that as like a framework for this kind of stuff. What can we put in place to prevent it? And my other favorite catchphrase is my personal magic bullet, which is maintain dignity. And For a lot of these folks, having a divorce, a loss of job, an upcoming court event, at its core, it's a stripping away of their dignity. So especially in a situation where if you have a person who lost their children or has much less access to their children than they did when the family was whole, that is really primitive. I mean, the only reason we're on the world is to procreate and have children, like genetically that's our primary drive. So to lose your children, even if it's a perfectly equal 50-50 split, for some people is just devastatingly difficult and they see it as a loss of their primary role as parent. So finding ways to help increase dignity, to increase their sense of value, to increase the acknowledgement of their import in the kids' lives and to find creative and unusual ways for them to safely engage in parenting, especially if this is a question of safety, is is what you need to do. And you need to do that until the kids are of an age where they are able to talk for themselves or do what they want when they're 18. And it's a lot of management and it's a lot of work for the non-pathological parent The good news is that it only has to be done when they're with with the other parent, you don't have to do it 24 seven like you did when you were living together. So the other thing I would say the all the obvious red flags are things that people know about. But one that people don't talk about often enough, and this is another one of my soapboxes, is strangulation strangulation is also really primitive. And it carries a high level of lethality people who will go for other people's necks are willing to end their lives. And what we're running into is that people don't either recognize or tell people that they have been strangled in the past. So someone might say, I'm interviewing them, I say, Have you ever been strangled, and they say no. I ask for more details about the abuse and they say, well, yes, he would jack me up against the wall with his arm over my neck. Well, that's strangulation. Uh, Rough sex that involves loss of air and passing out, that's strangulation. Uh, There are many uh, pillow over the face—that's strangulation. So these are—that is for me the number one lethality indicator that we really need to pay attention to. And the other thing is that there are there are lethality checklists that you can find online. When you have someone who's in a situation with domestic violence or who you're really worried about, um, there's some great—that's what they're called lethality checklist, and the police are using them more and more. Um, They're pretty brief, and they just talk about the major warning signs that people should look for.
0: It is like people equate it to maybe being punched, when really it's more like having a gun held to your head.
3: Yeah, I did this thing in Deep in Coronavirus, which was probably not a good idea for my mental health, but every time something came over my news feed, like on my phone about a murder somewhere, I would type that person's name into Google and see if they had a history of domestic violence and or strangulation, and usually it would take maybe one page or two pages of results going back to find some kind of report of, yes, domestic violence or, yes, strangulation, and the news stories about the violence that had come across my feed would never mention it, right? Or they would very rarely mention it. And it would just make me really happy if as a society, we could start to talk about the danger of many of these people and that they don't just pop out of nowhere, they practice their violence on the people in their houses.
0: Not to go too off topic, uh, there are conversations about the Supreme Court's decision last week and how that will be affecting women in domestic violence relationships, because that is the number one killer of pregnant women is their partner. How valid that concern is for people now saying not only is it the health of the mother, but it's these pregnant women that are maybe with men that don't want the baby or uh, end up becoming violent.
3: Yeah, there's no doubt that access to good reproductive health care saves women's lives on lots of different fronts. There are many reasons why women stay with an abusive partner and one is having a child with them. So if it is someone who does not have a child with their abusive partner and is now having a child with them that does increase risk, right, for both the mother and the child of being exposed to that negative environment. So there's no, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Being connected to someone through a child that maybe they wouldn't have been connected through that child before is definitely something that can increase risk and it can increase danger. We also know that having children um, for which people are unable to plan for uh, financially can be a big burden. Children are very expensive and they're very stressful. And in a situation where there is potential for domestic violence, having an unwanted or difficult child to manage financially, of course, can increase risk of making the domestic violence worse as well. And then there's obvious things like when you have a child, it, you either have to make a decision about income levels where one partner must decide to stay home with a child or you have to find reasonable childcare because it's very difficult, if not impossible, to work while you're taking care of child.
0: a child. It's been quite the week. <laughs>
3: It has been a difficult week it's been a difficult couple of weeks we've had a lot of school shootings and uh, other shootings and the shootings in buffalo and um, there are times when it's we have two options right we can either say this is overwhelming and this is difficult and there's nothing we can do or we can say okay thank you world for giving me a checklist of things that i need to go and do and i have my action items and i'm gonna i'm going to pick a couple and I'm gonna do them. Some of them might be action levels on like a micro level, like with me and my friends or my clients and the people I work with, I'm gonna try to help create safety in them. And sometimes I'm gonna work on a macro level and I'm gonna pick it in front of the Supreme Court or I'm going to work with my local legislature to try to change some laws in the middle. I'm gonna go and volunteer at a domestic violence shelter and see if I can help some of these women feel stronger and safer or men too. I don't mean to harp on women because there are many wet men and there are many same sex relationships which have an awful lot of intimate partner violence and it's it's just devastating. You said something earlier that really struck me that in some ways you think that everybody is capable of engaging in these kind of horrible acts and I thought that's really wise, and when I listen to some of the public discourse on all the awfulness that happens in our society, so I'm a psychologist, I work with issues of mental health, but pointing the finger at mental illness all the time, I think, is a, like an easy excuse for people to say, oh, they're not like me. I'm not capable of doing this awful thing. This person must have something seriously wrong with them to to do this terrible thing. But the reality is probably closer to what you said where if the situation was right, if our childhood and adolescence and adulthood had specific stressors in them, if we were put in a terrible situation, we're all capable of doing things that are reprehensible. And I have worked with murderers who are horrified at the things that they have done and devastated knowing that they killed a family member, whether it's a parent or a child, and they will never see that person again because of what they've done. And their grief is real. And it's, it's like it's part of the human condition. So all we can do is try to help and support and and raise up people, which is a good thing, right? So even if we're not stopping an act of violence and all we're doing is raising people up, to me, that's good enough. And I'll I'll be happy there.
0: I think that's a great note to end on. It's it's as positive as we can get for the topic we're discussing.
3: Yes. I'll end a show on murder with with rainbows and happiness. That's
0: right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. That was really so insightful and helpful. And I think will be really illuminating for for everyone listening. So uh, I very much appreciate your time.
3: I appreciate you bringing this up. And it's good to try to find answers for these unanswerable questions.
0: Our thanks again to Dr. Stephanie Leida for taking our time to speak with us and bring some insight to the topic. You can visit her website at drleida, that's D-R-L-E-I-T-E dot com, where you can find information on case management and how you can hire her for consultation, training, and evaluations. And we'll be putting that threat assessment up on our website under the show notes for this episode. Finally, a case that has occurred so recently, I'm unable to report a final outcome as it has yet to go to trial. Back in 2016, Rachel Blackshear was working hard as a mother of four while being a career driven woman. Already holding a degree in early childhood education, she wanted to add to her schooling by getting a nursing degree. As a single mother, she actually had to turn down her initial offer of attending the University of Alaska Anchorage due to concerns about having her youngest child, who was only three at the time, watched while she attended school. Instead of working towards her degree, Rachel was caring for her daughter during the day while her oldest children were at school. When they were home and could watch their sister, Rachel went to work as a certified nursing assistant, or CNA, at the Providence Transitional Care Center. Another year, another acceptance to the University of Alaska, another past opportunity for the same reasons. The next year, she was lucky enough to have a Head Start program come into her community. With her daughter in good hands, she was able to enroll in UAA and start working towards her dream once again. She was so grateful for the Head Start program, she was actually featured in the local paper praising the service. She knew she would be able to finish school, putting her in a position to provide for her family. Originally from Stockton, California, the funny, inquisitive, and bright teenaged Rachel was a far cry from the career-focused woman she would become. Pregnant as a teen, her mother was supportive, but left room for her daughter to fail so she could learn how to handle the stressors of parenthood. Marrying her military boyfriend, Rachel, her son and new husband, moved from California to Alaska. The couple had three additional children, but the marriage wouldn't last. As shocking as it may sound, she didn't want to move back to California. She had fallen in love with the activities Alaska offered, like snowboarding, and she was happy to stay up north. Finally earning her nursing degree, she ended up going back to Providence, this time as a registered nurse. They were happy to have her back. Besides her warm and welcoming personality, she was notorious for taking her time to get to know and connect with her patients. Everyone who encountered Rachel walked away feeling like they had made a new friend. As with marriages that end in divorce, there were ongoing issues before the breakup, during which Rachel had started a sexual relationship with Jeloni Blackshear, that affair led to the conception of her daughter, Jayla. Rachel and Jaloni parted ways as she dealt with the demise of her marriage, but he came back into the picture when his daughter was six. The couple reconnected and they were eventually wed. Jayloni was a natural father and stepped up to help raise not only his young daughter, but Rachel's other children as his own. Looking back on the pair's interactions, family members recall how joyous Rachel seemed. She was thriving in her nursing career, He was doing well as a corrections officer. Eventually, things started to change. Much like police officers, correctional officers experience high rates of drunk driving, substance abuse, and domestic violence. In July 2019, the Blackshear family was moving and Jeloney's daughter from a previous relationship, a four-year-old, was visiting from Oklahoma for the summer. The police report stated that a loaded gun was left out on a counter due to bears coming around the house which is exactly what the child saw outside the window, and that's why she grabbed the 10-millimeter pistol. When she attempted to shoot at the bear, the gun went off, shooting the little girl in the stomach, the bullet exiting out her back. She did survive her wounds. This incident led to Jaloney being charged with four counts of misdemeanor reckless endangerment and a visit from the Office of Child Services, or OCS, at first, the children were removed from the home with a lone investigator expressing concerns about the dynamics within the family, stating in her report that the kids were in danger and Rachel was under Jalonie's control, and because of that, she would not be able to make wise decisions. The extended family laughed those accusations off. The shooting was nothing more than a terrifying accident. He had thought leaving a gun out would protect his family from bears. He knew all of the older kids knew not to touch it. It was just a bad scenario. But even when the OCS investigation was closed, Rachel explained to her mother the house was still struggling to recover. So she asked that her 14-year-old daughter, Jayla, move to California to live with her grandmother and step-grandfather for a year. Her grandparents relished having her around. Just like her mother, Jayla was an outgoing friend to all, even participating in a friendship group in school. She was as silly and goofy as any 14-year-old, but was also driven like Rachel. After the shooting, she had to see multiple therapists, which wasn't a pleasant experience. It was then she decided she would be pursuing a career as a therapist, to both help people and to keep them from going through the negative ordeal she did. Then came the end of March 2022. Back home with her family, Jayla confided in her mother that her father, Jaloni, had raped her on the morning of March 30th. Not hesitating to take action, Rachel took her daughter to the hospital for a rape kit, where they were able to extract DNA of the rapist. Once again, the OCS was involved and immediately sent the two male children into foster care. For some reason that is yet to be known, the two daughters were left in the same home. What? However, the OCS did file for emergency custody of all four children. Jay Loney then sent the youngest daughter to California to stay with Rachel's parents, leaving Rachel and Jayla in the home. I am aghast. I I'm really hoping that something will come out with the paperwork that will explain, explain that better. Explain why that happened that Again, way. Again, like nothing's public because it, you know this was March, so uh, yeah, it's it's that really is just confusing. so backwards how that seems to have been handled. Yes. The following day, April 1st, a warrant was issued for a DNA sample from Jaloni. When their grandchild arrived, Rachel's parents had been told by Jaloney that not only had Jayla retracted her allegation, but the DNA results had come in and they were not a match for him, both of which were lies. This guy. On April 4th, everyone at Providence was shocked when Rachel didn't show up for work. She was a professional nurse who would never just not show up or at the very least call in. The only reasoning anyone could come up with was that, out of fear, the girls had fled, leaving everything behind in order to protect themselves from Jeloni. And while Rachel and her mother didn't speak daily, there had been a few too many days since her mother had heard from her. Their last interaction was on the phone a few days prior when Rachel reported she was leaving the house to go meet up with Jeloni. It's unclear what that planned meetup was in regards to, if it was him moving out, them getting a divorce, him pleading his innocence, who knows. It wasn't until the police called Rachel's parents to ask if they were hiding the girls that the family even realized that the two were missing. What made it even more strange was that for the next few days, they were in contact with Rachel, or at least they thought they were. You'll pretend you're someone else on the phone trick. Receiving texts from her phone, her family was concerned when they were unable to speak to her directly. Another alarming aspect, the grammar and style of the text was not how Rachel would correspond. On April 6th, Jaloney abruptly quit his job at the jail, followed by his resignation of his law enforcement certification. Then he disappeared. What was his job? A correctional officer. In the following days, the family's concern led to calls to police for welfare checks, which they did several times. They consisted of driving by the house and reporting that nothing seemed off. Oh, boy. Finally receiving the DNA results from Jayla's rape kit on April 13th, it was the worst imaginable outcome. Jayloni had, in fact, raped his own 14-year-old daughter. Charges were officially filed for the sexual abuse. By April 15th, the calls from the family had become desperate, so the police decided to use force to enter the home. That's when they made the atrocious discovery. The bodies of Rachel and Jayla, both dead since April 4th, 11 days earlier. They had both been shot. Given minimal information, Rachel's family claims it appears she was in the process of grabbing a few items before attempting to make an escape from Jeloni's abuse, which, as we all know, is the most dangerous time for a woman who is trying to escape an abusive relationship. Memorials were held in Alaska and California for the girls. Their friends and family were shocked that Rachel had been hiding what appeared to be years of domestic abuse, something that had only been spotted by that initial OCS investigator. As people spoke with each other and investigators, it was learned that if Rachel had anyone in her life, like a friend or a coworker, that did bring up concerns for her or the children, Jeloni would force her to stop talking to them. While those who loved Rachel and Jayla mourned, they were also on the lookout for their presumed killer, Jaloni, who had fled from Alaska. Police knew this man was a top priority. Not only was he an incestual rapist, he was the person of interest in regards to their murders. First, an alert was put out for Rachel's 2014 Black Lincoln Navigator. The vehicle was eventually located but didn't appear to offer any leads. Following his cell phone tips and leads based on photos, police followed his tracks from Alaska to North Carolina, then New York. When Homeland Security felt they had found Jeloni, they monitored the home he was staying in until they were able to get visual confirmation it was him via matching the jewelry he was wearing to that in a Facebook photo. He was arrested on April 20th for fleeing to avoid prosecution before being indicted by a grand jury for two charges of first-degree murder, four counts of second-degree murder, two counts of first-degree sexual abuse of a minor, two counts of incest, two counts of tampering with physical evidence, and one count of first-degree forgery. I'm not sure if the forgery is related to the cell phones which he had used to make contact in the guise of being the girls or if it's something else entirely. With his bail set at $15 million, Jaloni won't be seeing freedom anytime soon. It also isn't clear as to where he'll be extradited to, as most inmates are sent to the same jail he used to work at. And if I had to guess, that would not go well for him. <sighs> oh, darn. Yeah, I say let's send him there and see how it goes.
2: So, I'm curious. So, we know he was abusive.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think what triggered this annihilation was the rape? Because she followed
0: through and went and got the rape kit, I think that he knew he was going that, down. that was, yeah, he was going to lose everything, his job. So again, it's that perceived family Fail- failure, yeah. like yep. the family's falling apart. So whether he thought that that would allow him to escape and start a new life, or if he thought I'll take them out so they don't have to deal with what will happen. For Rachel's family, they struggle with the idea of having missed red flags and the what-ifs that could have saved her if they had known how bad things were getting at home. Again, it is still alleged Jeloni committed these acts, but the charges and evidence against him makes a compelling argument for the state. To allow the children to finish their school year out with their friends, the grandparents lived in Alaska for a few months. Now that the school year is out, they have most likely relocated their three grandchildren from Alaska to California to start their new parentless lives. Rachel's loved ones don't want to think about what she went through, but they also know it's important to acknowledge she was living in crisis, and be it out of embarrassment, shame, or the million other reasons people don't reach out, she didn't ask for help. Some of the members of her extended family dismissed those allegations, unaware that there was possibly abuse going on. It was also believed the abuse might have been occurring so infrequently, Rachel felt she could manage it on her own or it wasn't that big of a deal. They don't want Rachel or Jayla's deaths to be in vain. They want people to be on the lookout for signs of abuse and for those that are in the situation to know that there is nothing to be ashamed of. A little bit of perceived embarrassment is much better than living in a nightmare all alone. Based on no documentation or knowledge of what is happening in the case, I'm predicting, and Emily, I'd like to hear your thoughts, I'm predicting that he's going to end up taking a plea deal that perhaps allows him to choose where he'll spend the remainder of his life. Yeah, I I might agree with you there. I think, I mean, this is a slam-dunk case
2: for them. They have I DNA. I feel that it is, yes. It He ran, I yeah. mean, Nothing shows guilt more than running from that. Right. So I, I, think he probably will take a plea. The question is, how lenient are they going to be? How willing are they going to be to give him
0: what he wants? I really think it might only be something as simple as location. Yeah, like I don't think it's going to be lesser charges or less time. Well, I don't know. Some of those charges might get dropped. That's yeah, my maybe only like the fear. forgery. Yeah, yeah. I, I also worry too that he, based on. Just the documentation I've seen and his actions, he might have the ego to try to go to trial. You know, like that. wants oh, I hope wanna... he does. Oh, I hope so too. As
2: much as I hate that, that costs a lot of money and the in the pain of the family. I, I'd like to see him try. I mean, yeah, it, it, he's not going to get a better deal that way. That's yeah. for sure.
0: But yeah, I think there's definitely some ego there that he's going to be like, no, I'll just argue out of it, or I have good reason, or or feeling untouchable, even. Like, even if he he knows he did it, but maybe his brain is like, they'll never get then me again, for that. the shame of committing
2: rape mm. against your own child. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if he would.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Alaska or not, wherever he ends up as a correctional officer that it's raped his gonna own child, great. he's going to be facing some serious problems. There are a lot of takeaways from this case and one
2: thing and I'm not saying this to victim blame at all but one thing if somebody is telling you a a professional is telling you that a a woman is being controlled by her husband that's not to laugh that off like that's serious you're not in that situation you should trust someone who knows what they're doing.
0: Yeah and from the little bit that I read with the family I can't I'm sure it's a mix I mean of so many horrific feelings a little bit of denial of what even happened because it's so shocking. So like that's normal. But then also like the mom literally was like, we don't want to think about what was going on, which I totally get. You don't want to imagine anyone that you love suffering. Well, especially if you're not there, you're in a different state. You're
2: not witness to what goes on behind closed doors. If somebody whose job it is to see these things is telling you that there is concern, Yeah. That's not to be ignored. And I think, unfortunately, that's a lesson that was learned in this. But, I I mean, for people who may be in a situation where they're being
0: controlled or they know someone that is, it's obviously it's a red flag that needs to be dealt with sooner. Even just reading about Rachel and seeing her pictures and and her life story, it's like this was a very strong woman, Mm -hmm. a very motivated woman. And you can see how people... Not really justify things like that, but they can justify it to themselves. Yeah. Well, I'm when too you strong said, to ask for help or it's not that often enough that I have to worry about it.
2: Well, when you said that, when you said that they think that's why, that does make sense. If mm-hmm. she is in her everyday life very strong, maybe it is, okay, once in a while I can put up with this to have mm-hmm. my intact family. But the minute it turned to rape of her child, yeah. you know, she when the, the situation became serious. Which is so
0: commendable, because how often do we have cases where, again, someone doesn't, because someone doesn't want to imagine that they've they put their, their child in that position, mm-hmm. yeah, they dismiss it. Again, understandable, but all we say and all anyone says and all experts say is like, reach out, get help, report it, go to the hospital, do all these things. I, I'm looking forward to the documentation to see like, was there any kind of security measure put in place? Was there an order against him? Not that a paper will stop someone that wants to kill people, but, you know, were there any protections in place? Because she did do the right thing, and this still happened.
2: Yeah. And so
0: it's like, if you go into a hospital, and it's like, my 14-year-old child was raped by her father, There's obviously dangerous. There's a
2: process and procedure that should have happened, and I'm wondering, did it go as intended?
0: Yeah. So that's something I'm really interested in is, is the protection of the children and of Rachel post the hospital visit for those four days where everything happened. Mm-hmm. So we will keep you guys updated once, uh, you know, if there is a trial or a plea deal, any updates that we have, we will make sure to let you guys know. As for now, there is a GoFundMe for the family, because remember, these deaths occurred less than three months ago. You can find it by searching for Rachel. It's spelled R-A-E-C-H-Y-L and Jayla, J-A-Y-L-A, Blackshear, B-L-A-C-K-S-H-E-A-R, at GoFundMe. So far, they've raised just shy of $7,000 towards their $10,000 goal. And we'll put a link in our show notes. Definitely. Yeah, you can go to the website, go to the show notes. And there's a link right there as well. If you or someone you care for is experiencing domestic violence, remember you are not alone. You've done nothing wrong. You have nothing to be ashamed of. The abuse you're enduring isn't less bad than someone else's. So if you are in an emergency, you can call 911. You can also call the National Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or text START to 88788. You can also get help online at thehotline.org. You know, this case came up separately on its own, but in editing it and, and telling it to you guys today, you can't help but think about the fact that this young woman, Jayla, if she had not been murdered by her father, but if she had gotten impregnated... Yes. ...at 14 she might not be able to do anything about that pregnancy. Yeah, which is obviously on all of our minds this week with uh, the Supreme Court's decision. But that definitely crossed my mind that if she uh, survived, you know, escaped from him, but lived in a state where things are passing, you know, that are blanket uh, anti-abortion access, she would have been forced to have her father's baby and
2: this may come as a surprise to some of our listeners but we are very pro-choice <laughs> yes
0: I'm I'm and it's hard to explain like I'm not pro-abortion I have my own feelings towards it because of my life how I grew up to where I'm like it, it it's sad and horrible and awful and I don't know if I could ever do it if I had to but that's on me yeah, your your personal feelings have nothing to do with I'm still uh, incredibly pro-choice.
2: What what someone else does with their body and what
0: they legally should be allowed to do. Yeah. I think the most upsetting thing is that it's coming from people who claim to be patriots, meaning they support what America stands for, whatever that is. Uh, but we started as a country because we were escaping religious persecution. Because religious ideals were being shoved down people's throats and they're like, no, let us do what we want. And now their ancestors are like, you actually can't do what you want. And it makes me feel cuckoo bananas. I am in a
2: a place where I have a very hard time articulating it because I'm angry and I'm sad. And it seems like every day we just walk backwards in history. Yeah. And next we're going to see gay rights stripped. And, you know, I cannot see that happen I I just can't have that happen so if you live in a state where you can't get the services you need reach out to people in other states like us absolutely you will
0: do what we can to help you absolutely could email us and we can connect you with sources and information and people you can contact like don't be shy if you're feeling lost and confused and I mean we live in a not only a protected state, but our entire coast, the West coast has created a, you know, safe abortion space. And so we're very privileged in that manner to where the full impact of it is hard to grasp. I think it's that privilege of like, oh, that's terrible, but you know, we're okay. It's hard to really grasp how detrimental. I'm just so,
2: I'm so scared for people and the unsafe procedures that are going to happen and,
0: Oh, I, uh, it's... I, well, the people that the women that are going to die, because they have a uh, a fetus that didn't form correctly or mm-hmm. an atopic pregnancy or oh,
2: where the I saw an interview with a woman. She said, "Well, I trust I trust the Lord. It's an ectopic pregnancy. It's not going to be suddenly
0: saved. Yeah. Like yeah, it's just going to oh, maybe kill you. Yeah.
2: There's a lot of reasons people have abortion. It's not because they just are selfish and don't want to yeah. raise a kid."
0: But that's a fine reason if that's when somebody gets absolutely, Absolutely. If you don't want to, you don't have the money, it might kill you. The baby won't survive. It's just so many things. And I, speaking only for myself, it's been a lot of emotions, which you and I shared, that like one minute I feel like crying, the next I want to break something. It's also, it, it feels so overwhelming because we can't just walk into the Supreme Court and say we're voting you out and it's like well we 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 do vote we are voting and we're still getting in this position and so it feels really overwhelming to go okay i've shared stuff on social media i went to the protest now what and so that's the part for me that i'm having to overcome which is to find out what that really is finding calls to what action an individual can do yeah because that really Well, as we find them, we
2: will share them with people as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. So uh, hopefully things get better. And until we know exactly what to do, take care of yourself because you can't be out marching in the street and you can't have a revolution and you can't burn it all to the ground if you're tired and exhausted and not taking care of you. So at the very least, do that. Don't have a title, so keep your ears peeled. That's not how that saying goes. All right, here we go. In which a perpetrator, a good old perpetrator. Oh, I shouldn't have had coffee. I'm sorry.
1: Don't fight this. Don't fight the tiger. You gotta ride the tiger. I'm trying. The baby tiger. Ride
2: it rhythmically. Feels nice. (laughs) A little perv. I'm like a po- I like a pony. <laughs>
0: I like campy sexiness. You want it, let's do it. <laughs> but you're singing it to them? Yeah.
2: Am I just horny? <laughs> <laughs> Am I just wanting to ride
0: this pony that isn't really a pony?
1: Didn't we see his wiener?
0: Oh, uh, anyone's what? wiener? When would we have seen his wiener? I feel like I saw a
2: on a video a, that you or Googled? like a leaked
1: photo, and he had like it was like in in his pants or something. I mean, I might be thinking of someone else, but it was like what are you googling? Subway sandwich.
0: If you're honey, let's do it. Well, the karaoke lyrics. Are yeah, not. they're like no, no. It's not Maxwell. It's not genuine. It is. How does it feel? by- D'Angelo. D'Angelo, that's
2: who I was thinking when yeah. I said Maxwell. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, I knew. Idiot. I knew
0: exactly what you were. I could
2: see the video, and we don't
0: see his wiener, but we just see his uh,
2: his road Pubis. to his wiener, those little V's. Yeah. And there's rumors that there was someone down there helping. Mm-hmm. When he was filming mm-hmm. that, that's what might be what you're thinking of. Or are you thinking of John Hamm walking in his pants on New York City?
1: <laughs> do you see? Do you see this? If I hold it up.
0: <gasps> Wait. Whoa!
2: Yeah, I know,
1: y'all.
0: Wow, it's
2: it's it's standing
1: tall. That's
0: substantial. That is a
1: soldier. That is past the yeah.
0: Well, that's a guy that's gonna write a song like Pony. Yeah, Yeah. he saw a pony going to the bathroom. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) oh, that's like me. I like that you've seen that, and we're like, what? I, Penis? I don't know how
1: this is. I didn't. I didn't. I don't know
0: how this is. I
1: didn't search for it, but I definitely. Sure. I feel like it found me. It's like <laughs> I was holding a bunch of uh, rolled oats in my hand, and a pony just—the <laughs> pony came to me.
0: In which a perpetrator. purple tater.
2: <laughs> perpetrator. I like purple tater. Mm. Mashed potatoes sound real good. <laughs>
0: So, what do I say?
2: What you said before. Okay. You're fine. Just not
0: messed up. Oh, I see. So picky. <laughs> I hope that my notes are helpful. <laughs> he had been to court post divorce. There's
2: you with that D yeah, You at know the it. End. And Henry ran away from me under my bed because he didn't want to sleep in his kennel. <laughs> and I can't reach him down there, that little shit. <laughs> so, I heard him like making noise all morning. Every night, every night. So now I'm going to have to catch you. You're going to have to put go. little chicken wire up <laughs> around your bed. You're a New York street rat. Hear that, Jambolina or whatever your name is?
0: <laughs> Jaloney? <laughs> Jambolina. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at MurderInTheRain at gmail.com or through our website, MurderInTheRain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at Patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs>